Before you listen to this podcast, you can subscribe to The Critic magazine with the current offer of three issues for just £5. Head to our website, www.thecritic.co.uk, to subscribe today. Hello and welcome back to Black's History Week. In this third podcast on the role of the British Armed Forces in the Second World War, Professor Jeremy Black talks to The Critic's deputy editor, Graham Stewart, about the British contribution to the Allied victory. Professor Jeremy Black, in 1945, the Ministry of Information published a booklet called What Britain Has Done, 1939 to 1945, uh, which outlined in statistics and facts the contribution uh, Britain had made to winning the Second World War. Um, in that period, just after the war ended, was there a feeling that Britain had uh, needed to explain itself in the context of the contribution of other allies, principally America and the Soviet Union? Or was there really a sense that Britain had come through and it was a much longer time before the full contribution made by Britain's allies was, was seen in the round. Well, that's very interesting. I think it relates partly to which periods of the war you're thinking about. I mean, obviously, um, from 1939 until 1941, the Soviet Union was an active ally of Germany. And America, by being neutral and not opposing German aggression, was in effect an ally of Germany as well. Um, so by very clearly then, the, um, the allies one's talking about are Britain, Brit British dominions and imperial possessions and France until France left the war. Um, so I don't think anybody would really have much of a caveat at Britain playing the leading role in that period. Um, thereafter, as you know, um, there was anxiety among British policymakers, certainly by 44, to the extent to which America and the Soviet Union were ignoring British perspectives. Um, but as far as the general public was concerned, Britain was clearly a major power. And the very fact that there were British representatives alongside those of the United States and the Soviet Union at the, at the Allied conferences, um, as it were, put Britain in, the, in a central position, as did uh, Britain's role um, in the forthcoming United Nations as a member of the Security Council. I think that... Um, the extent to which Britain um, paid an enormous burden in its finances and, in a sense, an enormous strain on its imperial future um, was more obvious in hindsight than at the time. I mean, you, you know, this is not surprising. The general public is often uncertain or ignorant of financial affairs, as indeed we can see at the present moment, with the, with the enormous national indebtedness, disproportionate indebtedness taken on over the COVID pandemic. Well, when we speak of Britain uh, and her allies, as you say, it, we talk about different phases. There's the, the first phase where it's Britain and her empire, never Britain alone, Britain and her empire um, with the French, uh, initially 
right at the very beginning, Poland as well, of course. Oh, yeah, no, no, um, I'm not denying the role of, you know, Poland or subsequently other states that were allied to Britain and alas conquered. I mean, Norway, Denmark, uh, the Dutch, Belgium, Greece, Yugoslavia, all of whom, although con conquered, and particularly, in fact, the Poles, um, exiled units continued to play an, a significant role in the war, but clearly they lacked a domestic base from which they could operate, and that naturally um, limited what they could do. Mm -hmm. Well, I, I'd like to, to start by discussing uh, Britain's uh, role in relationship to the British Commonwealth and, and Empire. Um, starting with really the, the white dominions, so Australia, New Zealand, Canada, South Africa, um, how would you describe the way in which that relationship evolved, firstly in terms of how quickly the resources, both in terms of manpower and uh, raw, raw materials, were able to be marshalled um, and, and secondly, to what extent Britain was setting the strategic agenda and uh, the other Dominion prime ministers were uh, sometimes jibbing, but, but falling in with it, or to what extent they were very clearly saying, this is what Canada will do, this is what Australia will do, and uh, Britain will have to just accept that, that, um, that they have to follow our, our lead in terms of what we think uh, we should contribute. Well, there are a number of different questions there and a number of different points I could make. Um, uh, the empire as a whole, not just the white dominion, so-called, uh, provided a number of strategic resources, including strategic depth. I mean, ultimately, the determination of the British government, uh, if um, defeated by German invaders in 1940, uh, to, as it were, continue the war from Canada exemplifies this issue of strategic depth. So there's a whole host of elements one can bring out it's, in terms of imperial resource. I mean, a key element is the imperial trading system, the provision through trade of crucial raw materials, notably food, uh, but not only food, to Britain to enable it to keep going, manufacturing and so on, and feeding itself. And that in part, keeps going you know as it were over the over the uh, outbreak of war i mean obviously you've got new factors in terms of german submarine attacks but i mean it's not as though you need to press a start button saying now let us provide canadian wheat in order for britain to keep going or australasian um you know mutton and lamb um as far as the troops are concerned it took a while um, to um, to mobilize and deploy troops. Um, but I think it was done relatively effectively and uh, an element of the failure of German submarine forces as and indeed German surface raiders as a strategic uh, element was that um, this did not prevent the movement on a large scale of imperial forces in 39, 40 and 41. Uh, the obviously the situation changed in 40 after Italy came into the war which affected the Mediterranean axis but fundamentally um, say Canadian troops could move to Iceland or and indeed to Britain um, or Australasian troops could move to the Middle East 
um, without um, Germany being able to do anything really about that. So I think it's fair to say that in resource terms, the empire was working. Um, in political terms, it was also working. There was always going to be uh, irritations, but these became more pronounced only after um, uh, Japan became a more active, uh, more aggressive state, and that therefore that changed the views of the Australian government. But in the early stages of the war, when the opponent was Germany, the situation was somewhat different. Um, and indeed, you know, that remained the case when it, Italy came into the war. Uh, the principal disinclination, obviously, is some Indian nationalists um, uh, objected to the way India was brought into the war. But I think it's fair to say um, that the key element uh, in India was the large scale um, volunteer nature of the Indian army and um, the nationalists uh, were not really representative of Indian public opinion. Um, and they made a lot of noise, but the noise was disproportionate. Uh, how much do we know about re recruitment in the Indian army? The soldiers who were in the Indian army by 1945, were they um, people who had volunteered before war broke out and had been professional soldiers throughout this period? Was there a continual flow of recruits rallying to the defence of the British Empire and to India as the Japanese forces pushed through Burma and right up to and into the Indian border? Um, what, what do we know about, about that um, pattern of, um, of Indian manpower support? Well, we know quite a lot. I mean, the size of the Indian army increased um, in very crude terms. Um, the principal recruitment prior to the war had been among what were known as the martial races, uh, which were principally northern Indians, particularly Rajputs and Sikhs. Um, and during the war, there was a uh, I mean, recruitment from those areas in, uh, in continued and increased, but there was also um, significantly greater recruitment in southern India. And on top of that, more uh, Indians uh, went up into the officer corps. So the um, Indian army in the, uh, as part of the war effort was more whatever you mean by representative by 1945 than it had been in 1939. Um, the Indian war effort was principally army, there was an Indian navy, it was very small, um, but you know, it, it, um, I think the, um, how should one put it, um, after the war, rather like with World War One, after World War One, with the government of Ireland, there was a process of, if you wish to be benign, moving away from the war effort, and if you wish to be possibly more accurate, of trashing the sacrifice and effort of, follow, of fellow citizens. And um, it, that's one of the more um, unpleasant aspects of the many unpleasant aspects um, of both the Indian and the Irish historical myths. I'd better not say any more because I might get myself in trouble, but I think that the um, P 
people who make statements as if the British Empire in uh, Asia was the equivalent of the Japanese Empire are very ignorant and oblivious of the enormous numbers of Chinese and others slaughtered in very cruel circumstances by the Japanese um, and really should think more widely in contextual terms rather than pursue their rather um, anti-British stance, which is, alas, in this case, as in so many other cases, based on ignorance and prejudice. Um, Canada's role, I'd like to say something about um, the role of Canada. Um, I, I, I believe if um, Dunkirk, the miracle of Dunkirk had not happened and the British expeditionary force had been forced into surrender and the Germans had managed to land, in southern England, they would have faced Canadian troops defending the approaches to, to London. What can we say about the Canadian contribution, and particularly its very large naval force that it assembled? Well, Canada made an important contribution on land, at sea, and in the air. Um, on land, um, Canadian forces, principally against Germany, though of course there were Canadian units in Hong Kong, um, and they were grossly mistreated by the Japanese, but um, it's principally against Germany. Um, the Canadians uh, were a core element of 21 Armour Group, Army Group, um, just as they'd been a core unit, series of units in the war on the Western Front uh, against Germany in World War I. Um, at sea, uh, Canada ends up as the third largest navy in the world, its navy being particularly important in terms of um, protecting Atlantic shipping uh, against German U-boats. Um, in the air, Canada was very important. We've mentioned the strategic depth, of course, um, large numbers of British aircrew were actually trained in Canada. I mean, Canadians provided some air power of their own, but, um, you know, that was an element that was very important. And on top of that, Canada made an economic and financial contribution that per capita was considerably greater than that to the war effort that was considerably greater than, than that of the United States. How did the Dominion governments find themselves represented when Britain was uh, negotiating, negotiating and planning with its other two major allies, America and Russia? Well, I mean, in a sense, they were um, negotiate, they were represented through the British government, although there were um, bilateral relationships between the Dominion governments and the United States. I mean, obviously so in the case of Canada, where there was a key element in what was known as hemispheric defense, but also there was growing links between the United States and in particular Australia. Again, understandably so, American troops were based in Australia um, from early 42 as they were in New Zealand, but very much so in Australia. Um, I think it's fair to say that in terms of relations with the Soviet Union, that very much came um, via Britain. Um, the um, Dominion's principal 
concern, I would say, was on the military strategic rather than the political strategic element. In other words, you do not have a strong dominion's voice uh, on what is to happen to Eastern Europe and particularly Poland um, in the latter stages of the war. Uh, nor do you have, for example, a strong dominion voice on what's going to happen to, say, Manchuria, Sakhalin or the Curials. Um, but in operational terms, the deployment of forces, the timetable, priorities, I think it's fair to say that given that there were dominion forces there, it's scarcely surprising that they had a strong view on how these forces should be used and on what timetable. Well, let's talk more about the relationship between Britain and its armed forces and uh, those of the other major allies. Uh, the, the convoys and supplying of the Soviet Union is uh, obviously a very important strand. How significant was that British contribution to sustaining the Soviet Union, whilst it, particularly whilst it was on the back foot? Well, I think it's very significant. I mean, there was a rather good essay by a chap called Hill on uh, the supply of tanks, for example, to the Soviet Union. Uh, indicating, you know, a significant percentage of the tanks available in the early stages of the Battle of Moscow uh, were provided by Britain. Um, I mean, obviously, in terms of Allied supplies, there are three principal routes. Uh, the one that's most troubled in the sense that it's easiest for the Germans to try and stop it, and it has heavy casualties, are the Arctic convoys and the major efforts the Germans make to stop them are in itself an indicator of their importance. There is also the route via uh, Iran uh, and again that's an important British contribution which you know Britain, Britain and the Soviet conquest of Iran um, in 41 is intended to open up that route as well as to thwart possible German intervention. And then there's the most distant route, which is the one um, from Alaska to Siberia and then across all the way from across Siberia. Uh, that provides a considerable quantity of munitions. For example, a lot of the lorries, or as the Americans would say, trucks uh, used in Soviet operations in 44, 45, as well as a lot of the Jeeps are actually supplied from the United States. Um, so yes, the Soviet Union is heavily dependent on, um, on uh, um, allied military assistance, um, and that military assistance is both direct and indirect. And now if you, for example, indirect assistance is very much the case in the air. The uh, uh, Anglo-American Anglo combined bomber offensive against Germany um, leads to the Luftwaffe concentrating its air resources and air efforts um, on the defense of Germany and German interests in um, that are also under allied air attack, you know, in say the Netherlands and France. And that means there are far fewer uh, aircraft available for the uh, German forces in the Soviet Union. Now, you know, that is a clear instance of what we're talking about. And I think it's fair to say that the 
significance of and the range of the um, Anglo-American military contribution to the defeat of Germany, still more to the defeat of Japan, of course, and still more to the defeat of Italy, um, is very significant. I mean, you know, you get, um, um, shall we say, apologists for the Soviet Union or people that wish not quite the same thing to disparage the British and the Americans, including, alas, British and American scholars, who exaggerate uh, the Soviet contribution uh, without adequately considering the extent to which, um, if you're talking about, let's say, Italy, um, you know, the Soviet contribution is, uh, shall we say, not prominent. Um, and I think you could make the same comment as far as the as far as Japan is concerned. Um, clearly, as uh, in you know, President Putin is very upset when people say this and you know it's I think he's trying to make it a crime isn't he in 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 Russia um but um if we ignore a fairly obvious point that um the Soviets are not uh, killing Germans or destroying German material um prior to the summer of 41 in fact they're supplying the germans including the german tanks that invade the soviet union part of their fuel supply comes from the the soviet union if we ignore the fact that in terms of uh, german naval forces although there are um you know there are some clashes in the baltic uh, very and more minorly so in the black sea fundamentally um, the overwhelming majority of German naval units, and the same even more so with Italian and Japanese ones, um, are destroyed by the, um, the British and the Americans and their allies, such as the Canadians. Uh, you start to get a more, you know, more grounded understanding of the situation than if you focus simply on um, Soviet casualties. Uh, well, uh, Churchill found himself throughout 1943 um, resisting Stalin's urgings for the um, British and Americans to open a second front in Europe. Um, uh, how successful was Stalin nevertheless in changing British strategy to what might otherwise have been the position from Whitehall? Well, again, that's a fascinating question. I've tried to discuss that in my book on just out on um, strategy in uh, World War II. Um, I think it's actually got the original title strategy in the Second World War. So there you go. Um, there is the argument, as you know, um, that um, the British could and should have devoted more of an effort to moving into the Balkans in order to restrict Soviet expansionism there. I think that there are issues <laughs> with that. I mean, it uh, these downplays the problems of operating in the Balkans and into the Balkans and through the Balkans. Um, incidentally, um, in 1999, when there was the possibility of land intervention in the Kosovo crisis against Serbia, which was by no means as strong an opponent as the Wehrmacht, um, uh, there were 
practical problems there. I mean, obviously part of that was political. The Greeks were unwilling to provide an opportunity, but the idea of advancing on Kosovo via Albania, people realized, or those of them who had any sense, as opposed to the idiots who thought they can just move pieces around like a game of risk, that there were very major difficulties of operating through Albania. And the same would have been the case in 43 or 44 in operating through areas like the Dinaric Alps um, into Hungary. Um, on the other hand, you can understand Churchill at least considering this because he saw quite correctly that if he could persuade regimes like the Horthy regime in Hungary to change sides, um, abandon Germany without having to simply be dependent on the Soviet Union, this would be to the benefit, um, not just of the Hungarians, but also of the, um, of the free world. So I think it's worth saying that um, Stalin, in a sense, he has the advantage that um, he has a land frontier, he has, he's willing to see large numbers of Russian troops die in often poorly supported, poorly conceived operations. Um, but he also has geographical advantages in terms of the dominance, conquest and dominance of Eastern Europe. And it's very difficult to see how uh, the Western allies could have countered that. Mm -hmm. uh, when we think of the um, major allies that Britain has. Obviously, we, we think primarily of the United States and the Soviet Union, but there was another very large ally that was also on our side, and that is China. Um, it, it feels as if the allied relationship with Chiang Kai-shek came primarily through the Americans. Is that your perception, or should we um, be thinking much more clearly than we do about the Anglo-Chinese relationship, uh, particularly the Burma Road and other ways in which there was uh, supplying of the Chinese uh, forces fighting the Japanese? Um, I think it is fair to say that the United States was the most prominent. Um, it was the one that was most committed and able to deploy resources and committed to using China, nationalist China, as a basis for air power with which to strike the Japanese home islands. Um, there were tensions between uh, Chiang Kai-shek and Britain, including over the future of Hong Kong, but also differences and difficulties over operations in Burma. Um, but I think it's not surprising that for China, with, with which, uh, particularly nationalist China, um, the United States had uh, made a major effort to develop relations. It's not surprising that that looked more to uh, the United States than it looked to Britain. And remember, if you go back to the 1920s, the Kuomintang, the Chinese nationalists, in part had presented themselves um, as overturning those Chinese interests that looked to Britain. And they'd 
very much pre presented themselves as against um, what they saw as a, uh, what they presented as the kind of 19th century pattern of European presence there. And instead, the United States, which did not have territorial bases in China, nor did it have um, sort of these kind of commercial protection zones, um, that was more in line with the nationalist sympathy once the Kuomintang had broken, as it did do under Chiang Kai-shek, with the communists, uh, broken with the Soviet Union. So remember, the Kuomintang originally looked to the communists in large part against sort of British interests in the 1920s. They then break um, with the um, with the uh, communists and indeed in the early 1930s the principal military um, supplier to the Kuomintang were the uh, Germans and the Germans trained uh, the Chinese army and that pattern um, breaks down uh, and is ended uh, by Germany as Germany looks instead to Japan and from then on I think it's fair to say that that the nationalists increasingly look uh, to the United States. Um, I want to turn now to the United States and to its uh, role, not obviously not just uh, the role of supplying material to the British forces through Lend-Lease, uh, but also the strategic relationship between the British and Americans. Ultimately, when we have the invasion of Normandy, British forces are under ultimate American command under Eisenhower. How would you... Well, uh, can I just say, I would say Eisenhower is in command on behalf of the Alliance. Right, right. Which is not quite the same as saying he's under American command. It is an American who is in command, but that's not the same thing as saying it's under American command. Sorry, I'm not trying to be yeah. difficult. No, no, well, you, you raise an interesting point because it actually goes to, to the... To, to the nub of the question, which is, uh, to what extent was it a genuine partnership of equals between the British and Americans in terms of framing a, a common strategy, or um, should we at different times see the British and the Americans taking the lead and influencing the other? Yes, that's very interesting. Um, well, there are several ways you can look at this, as you won't be surprised to know. <laughs> and the literature, uh, Graham, is very varied on this. Um, one way you can look at it is to argue that Roosevelt was naive about Stalin, that he instinctively loathed the British Empire, and that this weakened um, the Western allies. Um, that's, you can make an argument like that and you can, you know, take it further by making comments about the result for um, Eastern Europe and so on. I think what I would say is whilst there are elements of that and, you know, history is never simple, people that argue for a unidirectional account of the past are, are naive. I think both Roosevelt and Churchill differently were aware that they had to operate within the constraints of what was possible in a democratic society 
in which there was concern about casualties. And there was also concern about the notion of a, if you like, good war. That, after all, is one of the major reasons that Britain had not gone to war with Germany earlier, as we've already discussed. Um, there was a, a major attempt to try and solve diplomat through diplomatic and peaceful means European uh, differences. It was only when that broke down with the German occupation of um, unilateral op op uh, occupation of Bohemia and Moravia in the spring of 39, March 39, that you move in a different direction. So in a sense, both Churchill and Roosevelt have differently to cope with practicalities, practicalities that are military, practicalities that are political. The net effect of that is that in those areas where they are proportionately providing the maximum or the majority of the military effort, their views tend to be most pronounced. So for example, America is not setting the tone of British policy on Burma. You know, it has views, particularly with reference to the use of Chinese nationalist troops there and the opening up of supply routes to Chinese nationalist areas. But fundamentally, it's Britain which is taking the significant role there. Equally, what the British may or may not think about the use of, of American naval resources um, in the Central Pacific and simultaneously the drive in the Southwest Pacific, the MacArthur Drive, which in many senses was foolish and unnecessary, that duplication, um, is neither here nor there. That wasn't Britain's, what wasn't Britain's war, as it were. Um, the difficulty, as you correctly say, uh, pertains in the case of the war against Germany. Um, and I think it's reasonable to, uh, to point out that yes, there are significant differences, but neither Britain nor the United States takes a selfish or opportunistic line akin to that of the Soviet Union. And you've got to remember, despite all the attempts, very specious attempts by all sorts of distinguished historians in Britain and the United States to argue that in some way um, the, the Soviet Union was more benign than the Third Reich. I think if you were a Pole or an Estonian or a Latvian or a Lithuanian or any one of a hundred and lot groups being carted off to the gulags or just shot in the back of the head by the Soviets, you would have found these scholars so-called in Britain and the United States contemptible and they are contemptible. Yes, yes. Um, one of the really significant decisions is taken very early on by Roosevelt after Pearl Harbor, which is to prioritize the European theater. Uh, it could reasonably have prioritized the war against Japan, uh, given the, the nature of the attack on Pearl Harbor. Uh, what is the uh, scholarship on his reasoning 
for doing that? Uh, was it the influence of, of Churchill? Or no, uh, no, it, uh, it seems to have been a genuine anxiety that Britain might succumb. And I mean, reasonably enough, I mean, if you think about it, Japan posed a challenge, there's no two ways about it, but it didn't pose a challenge to the centers of power of Britain. It didn't go to war with the Soviet Union, of course. Um, they didn't fight till August 45. And the possibility of Japan um, exerting military force against the Western seaboard of the United States is far less than the possibility of, um, of Germany doing so against the Eastern seaboard. I mean, in, in geographical terms, and I think geography is very important, I've got a book coming out on the geography of war, the Pacific is a very different space to the Atlantic. Not only is it far larger, there are also um, once you, I mean, if you look at the northeast quadrant of the uh, Pacific, the area between the Hawaiian Islands and the uh, North American mainland, there's nothing there. So there's no basing there. Whereas if you're thinking about the comparable situation in the Atlantic, there are potential bases that can be seized, which can then provide uh, amphibious potential, whether you're thinking of Iceland, the Azores, the Canaries, Cape Verde Islands, etc, etc. So I think that there is the practicality of anxiety, uh, an anxiety that had been underlined. Roosevelt had followed with enormous interest and concern the cruise of the Bismarck in the spring of 41. Um, so there's the concern about the German naval potential. There's the concern about what the war will mean if Britain is knocked out. Um, there is also the view that keeping Britain in the war and Britain and therefore as a base for the United States will keep the Soviet Union in the war, uh, which I think was a sensible view. Um, Stalin would probably otherwise have done a deal with Hitler as he thought of doing in both 42 and 43 and had done in 39. Um, the, um, so I think it's understandable that you get the Germany first policy. It's worth bearing in mind, that, and as I discuss in a number of books I've written on World War II, the actual reality is much more complex. The actual reality is that there need to be significant American forces in the Pacific to, to uh, protect American interests there, so that in terms of the Navy, I think it's much more complex than talking about a, a Germany first policy. In terms of the army, there really wasn't the infrastructural potential to use um, larger army forces in the Pacific in 42. And um, it was possible in 42 to mount an invasion on the eastern seaboard of the Atlantic with shipping sailing directly uh, from the United States and troops then being deployed. We're thinking here of Operation Torch in November, uh, um, November 42. There is no comparable possibility in the Pacific um, area. So I think it's reasonable to say that, first of all, if you're looking at it in the broader pattern, 
um, there was, in particularly with the Navy, a degree to which it's not just Germany first. But if you're looking at in terms of practicality, there were reasons, both political and military, where why it, there was a disproportional, disproportionate effort devoted to Germany. And again, if you're thinking of air power, based in uh, the, the United Kingdom, American aircraft uh, supporting and supported by British aircraft could bomb Germany. There was no similar potential. Based in Alaska, the Americans could not bomb Japan. Based in Hawaii, they could not bomb uh, Japan. As you know, um, you can, from aircraft carriers, you saw the Doolittle raid bomb Japan, but that was not the basis for, and the planes themselves uh, could not be recovered that way. That was not the basis for a sustained air offensive on Japan. And that isn't possible um, until um, islands are captured, particularly and bases established, particularly the Saipan um, in the summer of 44. So prior to that, you have to have a uh, Germany first campaign as far as air power is concerned. And this element of practicality tends to be underplayed. And again, unfortunately, one often has relatively ignorant remarks made by people subsequently, popular historians, commentators, who again, don't really understand the practicalities of weapon systems and the complexity of strategy. And in return, uh, how significant was the British contribution to America's war in the Pacific? Oh, uh, <laughs> that's a very interesting question. Not really until 45. Um, not least because, I mean, it would have been greater had the Japanese made more of an effort in the Indian Ocean. But as we mentioned last time, they didn't do so after April uh, 42. Um, so they do send some submarines there, but nothing significant. So no, not really. But then um, the, uh, the, I mean, how and why and could they have done so? The, you know, there are no British naval bases um, to which they could have sent the, na the naval units that were required for fighting Germany. Once Germany ceases to be so significant a naval threat, and once naval force is not required to the same extent for supporting amphibious operations, then the British very rapidly move significant naval forces to the war against Japan. And you use the term Pacific, which I think is a fair enough term, but you must bear in mind that let's say British carriers bombing Sumatra um, in you know, the last months of the war, uh, are, they may actually be flying from the Indian Ocean, but they are affecting the oil available from the Sumatran oil fields for uh, Japanese operations in um, the uh, you know in the Pacific, so this this indirect element becomes becomes significant. Well, uh, drawing all these threads together, um, I just wonder if we can conclude with your thoughts, Professor Black, on Britain's contribution seen in the whole uh, with regard to its other allies. Well, I think again, I think. 
I mean, drawn in the whole, again, I go back to which stage of the war we're talking about. From the outset to um, the end of 41, it's fundamental, because remember, the Soviet Union comes into the war and does extremely badly. Um, so from the outset until December 41, it's absolutely fundamental. After December 41, it remains fundamental at both sea and in the air. Um, but it has to be seen alongside that of the Soviet Union against Germany on land and against that of the United States in terms of a full spectrum military power, because the United States is a full spectrum military power playing a major role at sea and in the air, as Britain is, as well as a significant role on land. Whereas, as I've already indicated, the Soviet Union is not a full spectrum military power. Its naval and air contributions or strategic air contributions are nurgatory. Well, we must draw to a close at, at that point. But uh, Professor Jeremy Black, whose uh, books include A History of the Second World War in 100 Maps, for um, putting in perspective the British Armed Forces' contribution to the Allied victory in the Second World War, Thank you very much indeed. Thank you very much. And I think this is an important question. And I think it's an interesting question in its own right. We can look at sources, we can debate counterfactuals, we can consider the evidence available to contemporaries. But it's also an important issue because it's part of our collective memory, it's part of our understanding of ourselves. And there is this sort of tradition unfortunately very developed in academic circles and developed on the left of trashing Britain's history. And I think that that is, uh, to say it's unfortunate, is to put it mildly. Professor Black, thank you. If you've enjoyed listening to this podcast, why not subscribe to have the magazine delivered to your door? Subscribe today with the current offer of five issues for £10 by heading to our website, www.thecritic.co.uk.